Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am joined by my friend and mentor, Ted Federici. Welcome, Ted. Well, hello. Good to be with you. Fantastic to be with you. So Ted and I have known each other for a number of years now, and actually Ted is my executive coach in addition to being a good friend of mine. So a pleasure to have you on the show. Ted, tell us a little bit about your background. How does one become an executive coach? It comes really from life experience. I lived in corporate America for many, many years and left there, became a corporate adventurer, heading up different companies in different parts of the world including Russia, Azerbaijan, Italy, England, and learned a lot of things. And as a result of that, when I left that end of the business, I realized how much I had experienced and learned as a CEO and as a COO and as an ordinary common employee. When I put the three together, I realized there were a lot of things that people do in business today in which they need help. So as a result of that, I began coaching was trained and learned how to be a business planner, consultant, and a leadership coach. And you've been doing that for how long now? 20 years. So I know you work with a lot of CEOs and leaders, and we talk a lot about behaviors of leadership. And I'm just curious, what are some of the behaviors that you see that folks exhibit that actually sabotage their success? Every person needs two very different skill sets to do anything in life be in a relationship, run a company, run a country, run the world. They're very different. One is the ability to manage a process. The other is the ability to lead people. When they get out of balance, you have problems in a company. CEOs are particularly guilty of getting out of balance on the ability to lead people. Mm. And they sabotage themselves because they know how to manage the process better than anybody in the company, but they never give up the ability to do it. They they won't give up doing it, and they insist on doing it, even though they lie to themselves that they aren't doing it. Can you give me an example of this? I have a client at the moment who is the smartest person in the room when it comes to this particular product that they produce. And he has a team of people that he has hired and he has trusted to do their jobs to have it come together at the end. He will go in and blow them up when he looks at their PERT chart to get it done and say, well, that's the wrong step. You should do this instead of that. So they all leave the room saying, why should we make any decisions? He's going to change it anyway. Mm. We've talked a lot about one of the attributes of leadership is delegation. And we know that leaders, founders in particular, have a very hard time delegating. Why do you think that is? And do you have any tips and tools and advice about how leaders can delegate more effectively? Yes, people make the mistake of thinking that delegation is the abdication of their control, when in fact, it's just the opposite. When you delegate, you give up the actual doing of a chore but you don't give up the accountability or the responsibility for it. And so the tips is once you give somebody the opportunity 
to do something, you delegate it, you do a couple of things. Number one, you make sure they understand what it is you're asking them to do. Secondly, you ask them if they can do it and do they have the resources to do it. Thirdly, you check in with them periodically to see how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And finally, you get the hell out of their way. Which I think is a hard thing for CEOs and Very founders hard. to do. I mean, you and I, before we started this podcast, were talking about some recent leadership failures that have been in the news, you know, be it WeWork or Uber. And I'm wondering if you think that there are some common themes around what those companies can teach us about what not to do in leadership. Yeah, they, they, and there are common threads, whether it's WeWork, Uber, whether it's um, President of the United States. The common thread is a failure to understand their core values, mm -hmm. meaning what are the codes by which they live, mm -hmm. a failure to understand the vision for the institution that they're running, what, how do they want to be known in the marketplace when they make decisions. And those failures occur because the leaders do not know enough to trust the people that they are working with, that they have empowered, and they continuously get involved and make decisions for them. But isn't that a bit of a paradox? Because when you're founding a company, you're kind of involved in everything. But at what point does what were strengths become weaknesses? When you're, you continue to be the smartest person in the room and you prohibit other people for achieving the goal their way. Mm. They may not do it the way you do it, but if they come through with the end result, then it is a success. And unless you allow them to do it, you will never grow the business beyond the present capacity that you're at. A big example of somebody who did that very well was Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. When Bill Gates founded Microsoft in the garage with a couple other people, when it got to the point where he needed it, to go beyond him, he appointed the right people and went out and did other stuff. Right, right. Well, how do you know, though? Because I think the challenge, especially with founders, is that they do feel like they're kind of holding everything together with you know, string and chewing gum. And so they do feel like, I'm the only one who's holding this all together. But and that's because they fail to tell people what they need to know about the business. Mm -hmm. They fail to be honest about the financials of the business. Mm -hmm. They feel it's a weakness if they show something that isn't 100% correct. And I would say it all comes under one major heading, the biggest thing that creates problems for CEOs, small or large, is ego. So how do you manage the ego? Because I think one of the challenges is that you know, people hire us because they have blind spots. And managing the ego is taking them through the exercises that you and I've talked about of allowing them to see where they're, how they're being perceived. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means how do they process, receive, and disseminate information? Mm -hmm. Are they good listeners? Do they show people what is going on in the business and how it works? Do they provide information to the company? Do they recognize good behavior? Do they recognize good performance? Mm -hmm. Have they created work itself that is interesting to people? In short, have they motivated people? Mm -hmm. So what are some of the signs, if you will, that a leader needs to change the ways that they are leading people and managing processes? 
the business is not scalable because the processes are not holding up. And people who run the processes are afraid to come and tell the CEO because they're afraid their jobs will be on the line if they give them bad news. Mm-hmm. The, the leader sends out signals that we can't afford to do that and therefore we're not going to do it. There's a huge difference, Rhea, between making an investment in a business because it's required to make it scalable or to help bring in the right people and an expense. If the CEO sees everything as an expense and is unwilling to make an investment in people, in resources, in equipment, you're in trouble. That's a telltale sign. Mm -hmm. They will not make the investments necessary and they think of them as expense or overhead and I'm not doing it. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I also, knowing that a lot of the audience are nonprofit folks and feeling like they're working in a resource-constrained environment, how do you how do you assess that? Because, you know, we raise money. We um, I, I don't know any nonprofit that feels like they have enough money to invest in necessary... Um, and that's because I think the answer to that really in the not-for-profit world, which you know I have experience in, is because they, as an ED, they have failed to manage their board correctly. They have not really put the board together. If they've had the control, the ability to build a board themselves, along with the chairperson, the most important thing an ED can do in a not-for-profit is to make sure you've got the board person that will be your partner. Mm-hmm. And that board chairman and the people on the board have to understand that they really have only two important roles. One is governance, make sure the money is being spent properly. And the other one is to raise the money. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, they should not be involved in program. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a really interesting segue because for the listeners out there, Ted was actually my board chair for about two years, I believe. Yeah. And and on the board previous to that. And I served 10 years, believe it or not. I can't believe that. Yeah. So 10 years of partnership between us. What was your philosophy as a board chair? My philosophy was to bring people to the board who could either pay themselves, give or get. Mm -hmm. That was the theme. Mm -hmm. You could either give or get something we needed, Mm -hmm. sometimes money, sometimes expertise. We had the experience where we needed the CFO. We brought in an experienced CFO. She went to work Mm -hmm. for us, went on the board for a bit. So... Finding out what the what does the organization need. Also, be the ED's champion. Mm-hmm. The board chair has to support the ED, has to build a trust level with the ED so that the ED will be the partner and will say when things are good or not good. One of the challenges I know... Um that sometimes occur in nonprofits is that there's a disconnect between the ED and the board chair. And sometimes that disconnect is around control and decision-making, which is that folks don't understand sort of what their realm of decision-making is. Sometimes it's more of a management conflict. And I'm just wondering when, when have you seen situations go wrong and when have you seen them go right and, and what makes the difference between the two? The breakdown occurs when the board chair believes that they are responsible for the delivering of the program. Mm -hmm. 
and they fail to recognize that their job is to support the ED and to make sure the ED has what that person needs to deliver the program, Mm -hmm. whether it's process, money, whatever. And I've seen that happen in a number of organizations. One that I was involved in where I worked for the organization, the COO, and they had lost their mission Mm. because they had delivered the mission. Right. It hadn't failed. They had accomplished it. Right. And they had 3,000 people all dressed up with no place to go. So the board chair was smart enough to bring in a new ED who was able to say, what we've got isn't working. We need to redefine the mission. And they did. And I came to help them. So there I saw where we were able to change the mission and get everybody on board, including the board, and then go forward. Mm-hmm. Where it fails is in an organization when the ED and the board chair do not agree on how to deliver the program and what the role is mm-hmm. of the board chair. And so how do, you, how do you address and solve for that issue? Because I think the other thing that we don't often talk about, but I think is true, is that there is a power differential. And at the end of the day, the chairperson can fire the ED, but often the ED knows much more about the business than the chairperson does. And Not so, sometimes, always. Yeah, well. Really. And, yeah. and the reality is that, you know, and what you want is is a board chair that you can call a partner. Now, what do you do about a board chair is you have to outlive them. Um, you can't, there can't be a coup. Yeah. You, you can, you can, the other thing I, I find very helpful for EDs is to find moments with the chair when you can soothe the ego, which is always in play with board chairs, mm-hmm. and allow them to open the kimono and have an honest conversation with the ED about where you're going. One of the ways that can happen that I found useful is to make sure you do an annual board retreat Mm. where you work with the chair to talk about where we are, where we're going, and how we're going to get there and build the agenda. Then you allow the ED ED and the board chair to drive the board. Mm -hmm. And the ED kind of steps back. Often good to have an outside consultant to facilitate. For the board chair to shine Mm -hmm. among her peers on the board, and behave in in a leadership way. Mm -hmm. And so I think annual retreats are very important. And then during the year, at least once a year, bring them together to say, how are we doing? Mm -hmm. Let the board chair have a job. So the smart ED figures out something the board chair can do and lets them do it. Yeah, we had a guest on the podcast who said, there's nothing worse than a board board. Give them a job. You got to give them a job. So let's go back because we talked about some of the failures of leadership. And one of the things that you mentioned was the failure of leaders to trust their people to do their jobs. How do you instill trust? Well, as you know, Rhea, I have defined trust. And it's I use think about it as a stool. And the seat of the stool is trust. It's got four legs. One is integrity, meaning you have to be honest. Not about stealing money but about openness, conversation-wise, have integrity, have principles, use your core values. That's one leg of the stool. The other one is having goodwill in an organization with your board, with your 
the board chair mm -hmm. and showing the goodwill, having a discussion that you know when I was working with you as board chair, you knew I had your back and I knew you had my back. And we showed each other that goodwill. The third one is very a key one is, is keeping commitments. Mm -hmm. If someone keeps commitments that they've made, I'm going to show up, I'll be there, I'll do this, I'll do that, and you know it's happening, you trust them. Mm -hmm. The fourth one is consistent positive behavior. When that's missing, mm -hmm. that leg gets broken, it's all over. Any one of the legs breaks, you fall off the stool. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about motivation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important as an executive to think about how you motivate your staff and how you motivate your board, uh, motivate your donors. What are the drivers of motivation? They're very simple. This is not me. It's B.F. Skinner from the 1950s, mm -hmm. one of the premier social scientists of our nation. After a lot of studies, he figured out that the work itself is what's important giving people meaning, meaningful work, including board members and the board chair. They've got to have meaningful work. Secondly, recognizing them for doing a good job, mm -hmm. making a fuss over the employee of the month, the board member of the month. Mm -hmm. The third piece of that is letting people feel that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And that has to do really, as you and I have talked about, is getting information out about where we are and how we're doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, for me, that in the absence of good information, people make up their, their own. Mm -hmm. And that can be damaging. And the final one is helping people to get where they want to go. Mm. What, where, what do they want? Mm -hmm. Helping them to get that. That's motivation. So one thing that we've talked about, I, I have a, a list of what I like to call Federiciisms. One of my favorite Federiciisms is people cater to the craziest person in the room. And I think we've all seen various examples and various settings of uh, people misbehaving, but that instead of being called on that behavior, everyone sort of caters to that. Tell me about that. Why does that happen? It, it's human nature. And that's because in a, in a crowd, people don't have the stomach for confrontation. Mm-hmm. So the craziest people in the room, and, it, and I don't mean crazy in the sense of they're nuts, but they can be crazy in that they have an agenda mm -hmm. which they want to push, and they don't care because they're coming from insecurity or fear, mm -hmm. and as a result, they misbehave and run over everybody else's feelings. And the only way to deal with that is you never do a public spanking, mm -hmm. is to deal with it offline, outside, and make sure that the craziest person understands you get it mm -hmm. and you're not going to tolerate it and you expect them to demonstrate good core values in the organization. It's called confrontation and you can do it as an ED even with a misbehaving board member or board chair by taking them offline and talking about their effect on the organization. By the way, keep in mind that kind of crazy person in the room gets to run the rules is because they're basically bullies. And what do we know about bullies? The minute you confront them, they pack up their bag, bat and ball and go home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's easier said than done if it is a board situation as an ED because there is that positional authority. But I think you're also right that if we as executives fail to safeguard the core values of the organization, we might as well all pack it up. 
And what I found, I did this when I was at a not-for-profit as the COO, a national one. We had the craziest person on the board who was running the game. And I went to another strong, created a relationship with another strong board member and confided in that person that this board member was destroying the organization. Mm -hmm. And I said, I really need you to step up and confront this person because we can't. Mm-hmm. based on the fact that we're employees at the whim of the mm-hmm. of the board, you need to step up. Mm-hmm. And would you do that for me? Yeah. And the person did. So what am I talking about? Building an ally of where there is strength on the board and letting them know and then letting that person, because peer-to-peer, they have no control, yeah. the bully. Well, another one of my favorite Federici-isms is that it's important to remember to have the meeting before the meeting. And I... I stumbled over that one a couple of times until I finally figured it out. But tell me more about that. Well, you know, in every, you, you always have to understand in a meeting, what is the purpose of the meeting? If it's decision making, make sure there are no surprises in the decision meeting mm-hmm. where you need a decision. You have to understand before you go to the meeting where the people are on a given issue. On, if it's your board and you know that there are people who are against something or for something, you have to have the meeting before the meeting to understand where the people are, what they need to make it a success, and whether that art of compromise is possible. There is no sense of going into a meeting and having it blow up mm-hmm. and have the organization suffer because you didn't have the meeting before the meeting. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing in play always is what? Somebody's ego. But that's an interesting question because I, I think I hear you about making sure that you have the meeting before the meeting. But I also wonder if there's an element of it potentially destroying trust if certain board members feel like they're being talked to and other board members feel like they're out of the loop or may not be receiving the same kind of treatment and attention. You know, it, it depends. You, everybody knows their boards. And you have built you build a relationship with each board member. I know every ED I know that's been successful, especially you, Rhea. You've been enormously successful as Thank an you, ED. You, you really were. And I can say that now because we're both out of it. And I said it when you were there as well. But you build a, you built a relationship with each of the board members. You had a personal relationship where you could talk with each of them and they could tell you what they're what they were thinking, what their feelings are. That's really the job of the ED, mm-hmm. is to build a relationship with each person. That person never feels left out because they know they have an in mm-hmm. and a direct line to the ED. Mm-hmm. If the ED fails to build a relationship with each member of the board, that's a mistake. Yeah. So one thing that you touched on I think is important is that you talked about security and insecurity. And sometimes that when we are acting out of ego, it's because we're acting out of a sense of fear. Tell me a little bit more about this dichotomy between love and fear. They are the two basic emotions that each of us have in our lives. Every other emotion that you know of is an offshoot of one or the other. Um, I call them love, not romantic love, but security. Mm -hmm. The other is fear or insecurity. You can read people, depending on their behavior, Mm -hmm. and as you and I have talked about even today, when you hear someone or watch them in action, you can determine based on their behavior and what they say, whether they're open, transparent, have integrity, are listening, 
they want to play. We all win. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with somebody who comes from insecurity or fear, it's I win, you lose. Mm -hmm. They're not transparent. They play everything to the vest. Nobody knows everything. And you're afraid to deal with them. Mm. That's clear. So those two things are in play. When you're dealing with someone, you have to read that. Where are they coming from? So in the instance where somebody might be coming from fear, but they also might be on your board, what, what can you do about that? I mean, I think sometimes... Play to it. Play to their strengths. So, the what other, would be an example? Well, for example, if you know that someone comes from fear, oh my God, I'm going to look bad here. They, they have a strength. Everybody has some strength. So as the ED, you play to people's strengths. Mm -hmm. You go to them in your personal relationship, even with the people coming from fear. We had one. And what you did was to figure out a way to deal. You even had a boy chair at one point that was not exactly coming from security. Mm -hmm. And what you did was to build a relationship and play to that person's strengths. You got the best from them. You stroked them, mm -hmm. stroked their ego, made sure they made a contribution. Mm -hmm. Easier said than done, but I of think... Of course, but it's called life. By the way, it's no different than managing a relationship, a family. You've yeah. got the same dynamics going on. Yeah. A city, a village, a country, the world, the same dynamic. So the other thing that I think is important and we talked about it before we were on the pod is this question of intent and I think that's a really interesting element can you, can you tell me more about that yes I mean as I've grown through my career and in the work I do and in life I've learned to understand before I react to someone's behavior especially if it's damaging to me or the organization I stop and think about the intent what was the person's intent did they mean to hurt me or to hurt the organization. If not, I find a way to have a discussion about it or to forgive mm -hmm. and move on and know that the intent was not to harm. Then look for an opportunity in other circumstances or in calmness to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So just as we're wrapping up here, I just wanted to share one of my favorite Federiciisms, which is, it's just a fart in a windstorm. What does that mean? <laughs> it means that most things that we wake up and get involved in in work or in life, the, sometimes the best thing to do is just wait till it passes mm -hmm. and see how serious it really is. And to also understand that most things at the moment that we think are major problems, issues, disasters usually are not. Mm -hmm. And that if you... Just give it some time. They will work themselves into what they really are. Look, sometimes there are real disasters. Those are not farts in the windstorm. But 80% of the things we're concerned about are. How do we know the difference? The real disasters smell. The other ones don't. They just make a lot of noise. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Deb, we are out of time, but I really want to uh, say thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being a friend and mentor. And thank you for all of the wisdom and the calm in, in the storm. Yeah. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here.